Hello and welcome back to the Wheel of Crime podcast. This is the podcast where two ladies play games, mumble profanities, and laugh way too often. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Wheel of Crime podcast. My name is Jen. Uh, usually I would be joined by my beautiful co-host, Emily, but, um, if you've been following us on social media, you'll know that last week there was no new episode because Emily and I both, uh, contracted COVID. How embarrassing for us. Am I right? Contracting COVID in July, 2022. Just, um, literally not the vibe. Let me tell you. I've genuinely never been sicker in my entire life. Um, so yeah, there was no new episode. And because of that, because we both had to take some time off of work, Emily is not able to join us this week. She's playing catch up on some work stuff. So I will be doing a solo episode for all of you. And then next week we should be back to our regularly scheduled programming. But with all of that um, being said, let's just get right into our story for this week. I'm going to personally skip the life update and questions this week as uh, I am here by myself and Emily is my bounce board usually (laughs) and I am hers. So lost without her truly my uh the other half of my soul so today i'm going to tell you about one of the biggest and most infamous heists in history this heist is known as the dunbar armed robbery which was the largest cash robbery to have occurred in the united states to date it all started with a man you know as many of these stories i tell you do But this particular man was named Alan Pace III, and Alan was a resident of Compton, California. He was working at the Dunbar Armed Facility on Mateo Street as a safety officer. Basically, the company was a single-story depot where money from clients was trucked in, counted, sent out, and that was basically it. Alan's job duties included a lot of mundane tasks, you know, making sure the fire extinguishers were filled. He was there to keep things safe, but part of that also required him to really know all of the ins and outs of the business, you know. As the safety officer, he really needed to know um, everything about the facility, including the floor plans, the security camera locations, a way into the vaults where the cash destined for automa- automated teller machines was stored, etc. So with all of this intricate information floating around in his brain, Alan had both an idea and an opportunity. He recruited four other people who worked as rent-a-cops for the company Their names were Thomas Lee Johnson, who at the time was 27 and lived in Las Vegas, Freddie Lynn McCrary Jr., who was 29 and lived in Arletta, Terry Wayne Brown, 
Sr., who was 37 and lived in L.A., and Eric Damon Boyd, who was 29 and lived in Benea Park. And together, they were going to pull off a heist at the facility. However, Alan didn't really let his recruits know how much money he had planned on taking. They hadn't discussed that. All they knew is they were going to get some cash. Everything was going great. Alan was able to case the place while on duty and really plan everything out. But Alan ran into a small hitch the day prior to the robbery. He was terminated by the company. Supposedly, he was discovered tampering with certain vehicles. But nonetheless, he'd already provided the group with detailed floor plans of the facility, like locations, where they had cameras and door keys to critical areas. So the robbery was set for Friday night, September 12th, 1997. And that night, all five of them attended a party in Long Beach, California. After a few hours at the party, they discreetly slipped away and changed into black clothing and masks and then drove to the Dunbar Depot. They brought ski masks, pistols, and a shotgun and radio headsets to help them communicate. A couple of vault guards were stationed close by to provide additional security, but they left their posts around 1230 a.m. to take their lunch break. Alan and his crew knew the routine of the night guards and they entered the facility right when they were taking their break through a side door shortly after midnight with a key that Alan still had despite his recent dismissal. That side door they entered into led right into the company cafeteria where our unsuspecting guards are taking their lunch break. So they basically tied these dudes up on the ground and bound and gagged the unsuspecting workers with duct tape before they could set off the alarms. Alan then led the men into a vault area using a key that he'd taken from one of the supervisors and after tying more up like the rest of the employees that they found. Alan and his crew used bolt cutters to break the padlock on metal cages containing the depot's cash. The thieves then started phase two of their plan. They backed up a rented U-Haul van into the vault dock. The men loaded selected bags of money. They stole mostly $20 bills that were meant for drop-offs at ATMs. But Alan, because he had really been casing the place, already knew which bags contained the higher denominations and non-sequential bills. He also had knowledge of other security recording devices and removed the tapes from the machines, destroying virtually all of the physical evidence that there would be against them. In less than 30 minutes, the thieves tossed nearly 19 million U.S. dollars into the U-Haul, closed the van's back door, left the area, and returned to the party. Alan and his crew also left behind signs of forced entry to really just throw off the police. By the time they returned to the party, many of the guests were properly intoxicated and hadn't even really noticed that they left, making it the perfect alibi. It seemed that they had gotten away with it, but investigators found crucial clue left behind at the scene of the crime. Now, more on this later. But investigators also really decided early on that they were going to downplay the heist to the public. They feared that if the true size of the 
money that was stolen became public knowledge. It would become national news and the robbers would go further underground and then they would have no chance of catching these guys. So for that reason, they described the haul as more than a million dollars and nothing more. Now, due to Allen's recent termination, he was on the radar of investigators. So they kept a really close eye on him and other suspects to see if they would change their lifestyles in any way, from purchasing homes to spending sprees, etc. You know, had any of these guys come into a large sum of money lately? That's what they were trying to figure out. And due to the precautions that Allen and his team took, there really weren't many clues, except for one, more on that later. And Dunbar and their insurance company, Lloyds of London, posted a $125,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of people behind the crime, but no dice. And as one of the lead investigators walked in a dimly lit garage on site, he noticed a tiny rectangle of amber-colored plastic that looked as if it had come from a vehicle taillight. It was notable because it didn't match any of the company vehicles. So, this is our only clue. <laughs> so, the investigators sent this tiny little piece of plastic to an FBI forensics lab in Washington, which eventually was able to match the taillight to a 14-foot-long U-Haul truck. But this clue wouldn't be the spark that was needed to really solve this crime. It was a very small piece of the puzzle that really kind of left nowhere. U-Hauls were pretty common. It could have been anyone. And Alan himself, who was on the radar, didn't rent the U-Haul himself. He had one of his accomplices, Eugene, do it for him and Eugene wasn't on their radar at this time. Eugene was not you know really connected in any other specific way and they're really focused on Alan and Alan and his crew they all continue to keep a really low profile and avoid purchases that would arouse suspicion and after about six months they enlisted help of a local immigration attorney to assist in laundering their money. They paid David Matsumoto and his assistant, uh, Joaquin Bin, $1 million each to devise various ways to get rid of the cash. Gang members were soon involved in real estate transactions, purchasing cars, creating bogus W-2 tax forms, to give the appearance of earning wages and establishing phony front companies to pass the money through. Millions were used to buy automobiles and houses and they used uh, straw buyers to acquire at least 10 homes during public auctions of foreclosed properties. Some of the houses were rented out while others were occupied by the suspect's families. A few hundred thousand dollars were spent gambling in Las Vegas and IRS agents would later trace about $2 million to a company established by a man named Eugene Lamar Hill Jr. and Thomas Lee Johnson who were laundering the stolen money. Under the name Rainforest, most of the money was used to buy an incinerator that burned trash without creating air pollution. 
and they paid themselves a salary of more than $100,000 to do this job. I mean, we stand environmental kings, but we do not stand criminals. So it's really a toss up here. Um, <laughs> but things really continued to go on inconspicuously for years, about two years, until Eugene, our man, our environmental king, slipped up and he mistakenly failed to remove the original currency paper wrappers from a stack of cash he was using to purchase additional real estate. The skeptical realtor showed the money to police and cops discovered that Eugene was also the individual who rented a U-Haul truck the day of the robbery. Uh-oh. Fucking Eugene. So an informant then identified Eugene as the person who did, in fact, rent a 14-foot U-Haul the day before the heist and returned it a day later. It didn't help that when Eugene was later arrested, he still had a stack of bills bearing the same money wrappers as those taken in the robbery. Eugene then confessed and pointed authorities to other suspects. So Eugene was like, fuck it. If I'm going down, all these bitches are going down with me. Each man was charged with conspiracy to commit the robbery using a gun during a crime of violence and interfering with interstate commerce. Thomas Lee Johnson faced an additional 24 counts of money laundering. And during the trial, Allen testified in his own defense, saying that he was being framed by another defendant because, quote unquote, I was messing with his wife. And because being a womanizer is not a crime, it didn't mean that he was also a robber. And he really thought that that defense was going to get him off. He was like, I'm innocent. My name's Alan. But it didn't work. And the father of one of the men testified against his son, Eric Damon Boyd, did not take the stand himself, but his father, Steve, said that his son told him to launder about $177,000 in cash that came from a drug deal. So apparently his dad was cool with that, but not with a heist. I don't know. But his son later admitted that it was from the Dunbar armed robbery. And a task force made up of Los Angeles police detectives and agents from the FBI and IRS was able to recover around $5 million from the theft, mostly in the form of homes, cars, and other valuables. Authorities um, guessed that the rest was either spent at gambling tables in Vegas or burned because the culprits realized that many bills had numbers that could be easily traced and then traced back to them. So unfortunately, despite extraordinary efforts, over $10 million was still unaccounted for, said the then U.S. attorney Alejandro Marucos in 2001, four years after the robbery. He also said, quote, I encourage anyone with information about these funds to contact the FBI. Allen was sentenced to 24 years and two months in federal prison for the heist. Allen was also ordered to pay back the millions he and his five accomplices stole 
U.S. District Judge Lords Baird characterized the sentence as a very long time, a very serious sentence, saying that she wanted to punish Allen for showing no remorse and for denying that he was behind the robbery at all. Of the sentences given to all the convicted robbers, Allen's was the longest. Eric Boyd was sentenced to more than 17 years and the rest of the guys received between 8 and 10 years. Eugene also offered prosecutors the names of a lawyer and his former paralegal who were subsequently indicted on charges of money laundering and the pair were accused of writing more than 50 checks totaling more than 1.4 million dollars on behalf of two suspects for investments and laundering money used to make down payments on homes. As much as 10 million dollars might still be hidden somewhere though the convicted robbers won't spill as to where it's hidden. So investigators believe that there are accomplices at large who know where the cash is hidden but aren't coming forward anytime soon. So Allen served his time at the FCI Stafford until being released on October 1st, 2020. And that is my story for you all today. Nice, short and sweet little uh, heist episode. I like doing these um, heist episodes for my solo episodes. I feel like it's a nice break from my usual really serious serial killer stories and other murders. So yeah, if you want to listen to my last solo episode, I covered the heist of the Mona Lisa. Yes, the famous painting and... Otherwise, we will see you next week for another new episode. You can follow us on social media uh, at Wheel of Crime. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can send us an email. We're wheelofcrime at gmail.com. We've got a website that has all the things. It's www.wheelofcrime.com. And we're also on Patreon if you're feeling like supporting the show. And another way to support the show if you patreon's not your thing then you could leave us a five stars wherever you're listening it's so helpful and greatly appreciated but that's all for today that's it that's all we'll see you next week okay bye